wonder, can you even begin to imagine what the paradise of the Garden of Eden must have been like before the fall? Remember, this was God's perfect creation. He is able to describe it as being very good. There, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, lived in utter harmony with their surroundings and in complete peace and fellowship with God, the Creator. Everything was just as God wanted it to be. What an amazing place. And I would suggest to you that even if we begin to try and imagine that world where Adam and Eve uh, were in complete harmony and were naked and knew no shame because there was nothing to be ashamed about. Everything was right. There was no flaws. Well, even if we begin to try and imagine that, our imagination cannot begin to even encompass the glories of that created order. For our imaginations are sinful and flawed. And what we would be inclined to do is imagine things and they would be tainted by our sinful thoughts, our desires, the lusts of our minds will impact the very imagination that we would have. But we need to begin to think about the garden as the place that was certainly good. A place that was a delight to God, to Adam and Eve. Of course, the other side to this is that today we fail so often to understand the utter corruption of the world in which we live. We do, and at times we take things and we think that they're utterly awful, but we do not fully appreciate the brokenness on the corruption of the world uh, that has been brought about because of sin. Uh, Even as we think about wicked things, we know that they're vile, and we who love the Lord know they're distorted, but they're not. Uh, And even the good things we, we don't see as we ought, because they are all tinted by wicked thoughts. And so as we go back this morning to Genesis chapter 3, we need to try and remember that this was the paradise of God. And into this came a terrible problem. And the problem is a rebellion which brought a curse. And while today we're looking at this chapter up to verse 20, it is going to be an overview of all of those verses, but there's a lot more detail, a lot more things could be said than I will say. But here is rebellion and curse. God had created this wonderful world. But what happens? Well, into this world, we first of all, in this chapter, meet a very crafty enemy. The crafty enemy comes in the guise of the serpent, And it is clear from the outset that this is no ordinary snake. This serpent is the one who is described uh, with full of evil intention. And he is the serpent 
whose intention it is to deceive and to lead the man and woman away from God. He himself is the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, that one who is there to provoke evil. This is the one that we meet when we turn to chapter 3, the crafty enemy of God. But that might raise a question. Where did this evil spirit, this snake, this serpent come from? And that's a good question to ask. And the detail of how Satan came to be in the position he was in, we are not completely clear. We don't have all the details. There's a mystery that surrounds this, the beginnings of Satan. There are one or two things, however, we do know. First of all, God created everything and it was good. And that included not only the world as we see it around us and the universe, but the powers and the angels in the heavens. They were all good. And God made them and they were good. The second thing is we note from other parts of Scripture that this Satan, this devil, had been a good angel created by God, but one who it seems had rebelled against God. His rebellion was such that he was cast out. There are a few texts, just a couple, to highlight this. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, God did not spare the angels, when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So God cast out some rebellious angels. And unlike man, there's no provision for their salvation. Or Jude, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So we meet the crafty enemy of mankind and we're meeting a fallen angel whose intent is to try and set up a kingdom that is an alternative kingdom to that of the living God. He is rebelling against God. He wants to be God and like God. And we have to accept that this is his position. How exactly and all the details surrounding how Satan came to be in that position, there are many things, many questions we can't answer. But you and I need not be overly disturbed about those things. We accept God's word as truth. And what we need to focus on is not the evil one, but rather our own need as fallen man for the Savior who was sent for us. And so we uh, need to remember that. Another thing as we think about this crafty enemy is that we should not underestimate the power that he has. It is evident from Scripture that this the evil one, the Satan, the devil has power. Power which he is allowed under the sovereignty of God to exercise. And we see that very especially in the book of Job. 
when we read of Job, the devil comes to Job, or or to God, and speaks to him about Job. And God gives him parameters in which he is able to exercise his power. But he is not mightier than God. But he has power. He has power. And it is only by the power of the living Christ that you and I are able to overcome him. And so remember today as we think about what happens in chapter 3, the crafty enemy who is there, Satan, coming in the form of the serpent. Secondly, I want to bring to your attention the cunning deception that he invokes. He comes and has a discussion with the woman and he deceives her. He doesn't come with outright rebellion against God and say to the woman, look, the God who has has made you is is a tyrant and he's keeping you down and you, you should have more freedom than this. No, he comes rather more subtly to do exactly that. And we read of how he speaks to the woman. He says to the woman, um, did God really say? And then what he actually says is not exactly what God did say. Does God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's not what God did say. God had said you may eat from every tree in the garden except one. And so he's begun already to influence the mind of the woman, cunningly, craftily. And of course, Eve replies, and we could investigate and go into detail about the way in which she replies, because her reply is less than exactly what God says. Uh, She replies, yes, we may eat of all the fruit of the trees of the garden, but we must not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. And she adds, you must not touch it. God didn't say you shouldn't touch it. He said you shouldn't eat it. You see already, the crafty, cunning serpent has begun a process by which the woman and the man, because Adam was there too, are beginning to think about what God had said. To add to it or to subtract to it. The same is true in verses 4 and 5. What does the serpent say? You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. And then he tells her something. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Satan is cunningly saying to the woman, this God is a tyrant. He knows that your eyes will be opened. He's keeping something good from you. How cunning, how crafty he is. Here's a God, Satan is saying. He's made you. But you're not allowed to eat of that tree. And it is the very thing will give you greater freedom and knowledge and wisdom. Thus, the curiosity of the woman was aroused. Friends, as we learn about the cunning deception here, is that not the truth behind every sin? 
I want you to recognize today that the cunning manner in which Satan speaks the woman is the same cunning way in which he tempts you and me to sin. He causes us to think that God's word isn't all that it is. He undermines it. One of the devices he uses is to enable us to forget what we've read and to twist it in our minds so we don't know exactly the truth of God as we ought. And Satan comes cunningly in every sin. We could take all kinds of sin. We take the sin that, that of theft, of that of taking what doesn't belong to us. And what does Satan say to the robber? He says, well, this is an easy way. And you'll be rich. And you'll have an easy life. And it'll be far better for you. Don't have to slog and work hard to get money. Just go and steal. And of course, it's very appealing. And it's saying to the man or woman, God is a tyrant making you work and slave for your money so that you can live. That's the cunning, crafty nature of the evil one. The same may be true even about the Lord's day. Satan comes and says, oh, all the stress about keeping the Lord's day. Go out and enjoy yourself. Forget about God. And you'll have great time. But God's word does say we should remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy for God. And it's within the context of your relationship with Christ and God, that you're truly alive. Satan is telling you cunningly a lie. And when it comes to believers, Satan continues to deceive you and me in all these ways. He whispers in our ear, it won't do any harm. Or he says, nobody will know. Well, you should come this evening to hear about the omnipresent God. But nobody will know. You're here on your own. There's no eyes looking at you. Nobody sees what you're looking at. But of course that's all the cunning, crafty nature of the evil one. Think about some of the times you have failed God and see how what Satan has done has really led you to ignore God's word or to forget God's word whether that's in stealing or adultery or the, or the Lord's day or the blasphemy or covetousness. We really put God's word to the back of our minds. Friends, if we are, if you and I as God's people are going to thwart Satan, we need the word of God in our hands and in our hearts and in our minds. That's the importance of daily scripture reading and of thinking about what is read, of family worship, of bringing our children into the atmosphere where they know this word is God's word. And this is how we are to live. This is to be reminded us daily of what is right and true so that we can thwart the cunning purposes of Satan. Thirdly, I want to draw your attention to the curiosity which wins. That's what I've called Eve's fall. What happened when this woman listened to Satan? Well, we can see how it happens. And sometimes when we read through the chapter, we think, well, this maybe happened 
quite quickly there was a conversation of the serpent Eve had reached out her hand took the fruit but perhaps not I can just imagine her struggling turning this over in her mind thinking about it and in verse 6 we read when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food how did she know that? Satan and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for getting wisdom how did she know that? Because the evil one had provoked her to think in this way. She took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Let me just say at this point that Adam is absolutely as guilty. We cannot lay it all on the woman. In fact, the man ought to have been there and saying, No! He ought to have stopped her. He was right there. Husbands, it's our responsibility to lead. We need to be men in leading and saying no or encouraging yes. Adam failed utterly in his responsibility. But she took. Why? Because curiosity was there. You can just imagine, and I think of her mind turning over. Look at that, that fruit. It's lovely. Look at all those other fruits. But this fruit... It looks just as delicious. looks as juicy and as tasty. Uh, it is pleasing to the eye. And what's more, I know now that when I take this, I will have wisdom. I'll know about good and evil. That'd be a great thing to have that kind of wisdom. I wonder what it'd be like. I wonder if it's really as tasty as it looks. I wonder if really I will understand more by eating this fruit. You see how the curiosity was stirred up by the cunning Satan and as she thinks about all of these things, curiosity wins the day. She stretches out her hand and ate the forbidden fruit. Curiosity. We have a saying, of course, curiosity killed the cat. Curiosity. Leads many into sin. This illicit relationship. I wonder, I wonder if it will be as fun as everyone would make out. This stealing from others. I wonder, will it really make life easier? Well, just imagine. You think about all the things that you can have with the money that is stolen. You're curious to know if it will all work out as well as it sounds. Well, curiosity for Eve was what brought her down and brought Adam down. No doubt she said to him, isn't that lovely, Adam? Look at the beauty of that fruit. It looks very tasty. Here, try a wee bit. Will we try it? Could your curiosity today be leading you into sin? Could your desires to taste something that is forbidden be leading you sin. Very often when we do feel and fall it's because we're satisfying self. And behind that is a kind of selfish curiosity. We're sinners. We're fallen in Adam. And though Adam and Eve committed this first sin, you and I are as guilty because we are in Adam, but we also go out and actually sin and do wrong. Contravening the very words that God has spoken.
What Eve needed to think was not, this is lovely, but say, the God who made me said, we shouldn't eat of this. It is forbidden. Look at all the lovely trees we have to eat. Look at the lovely fruit there. Look at those trees. Look, remember how tasty that other tree was. Just delicious. Nothing could be better than that. God said we shouldn't eat of this. So we don't need, to, we don't need it. But curiosity won the day. And that led to the cowering before God. So he's speaking to the children about the man and his wife suddenly are cowering from the freedom and the innocence and the beauty of the garden where everything was in such harmony and glorious and they themselves with one another were completely unashamed. They weren't looking at each other in any wrong way. They were worshipping God and at one with Him. Now suddenly what's wrong? Here they are hiding from God. Here they are looking at each other and embarrassed and covering themselves with fig leaves. And the man heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the, was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees. They're cowering in fear of God because they know they have failed him. Because the relationship that was there is shattered the God who was at one with them and all they had to do was think and, and commune with him and with each other, all of that is broken and gone. And they're cowering before the God of heaven, their creator, the one with whom they were made to have true communion and fellowship, and they are broken. God comes into this situation and the man and the woman are absolutely ashamed of themselves. I found it very hard to get an illustration that would fit this. There's nothing good enough. But certainly in my day, when I was at school, I remember being called to the headmaster's office for doing something I shouldn't have done. And I usually wasn't that bad a youngster. At least I like to think that. But I cowered before the headmaster. Utter fear. What's he going to do? Am I in real trouble? Cowering fear. I knew his authority. I respected his position and who he was. But I was afraid. I knew that I might suffer some punishment. But I hoped it wouldn't be too bad. Men can lose courage when they cower before someone who has power over them and before whom they have failed. The man and woman were cowering before God. And friends, there is a sense in which today we ought to still be cowering in fear and reverence of the Holy God because you have disobeyed Him. You have rebelled against Him. As sinners, our lives are far from what they ought to have been. And God, the Holy God, made us to fellowship with Him. And yet we continually and persist in rebellion. And He will call us to that day when we will have to give account. He will come as God here in the garden 
Hey, where are you today when we're called to the seat of judgment? Now we could cower in terrified fear with no hope. But the good news of the gospel is there is hope. But do you reverence God? Do you see him as the Holy One that he is? Part of the problem of our society is that God is not feared. People don't cower before God. They don't know of their sin. They're far from understanding the holy majesty of a judging, righteous, holy, unchanging God. But that's the God they need to learn about. That's the God we need to preach to them. That they might cower before him in their sin and cry out, What must I do to be saved? It's the same God who in love sent the Savior. Sadly, we treat, some people treat God in a blasé manner. Somehow they think it will be okay. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. It will be fine. Don't realize the suffering, the pain that Jesus suffered. The nails through his hands, the thorns in his head, the absolute agony of every new creaking in his body. That's what he suffered to deal with our rebellion. But at the end of this chapter, the good news does come, but it comes as the curse falls. And God comes and there's the curse that falls. The man says, I have afraid, I was naked. But God, in his interview with the man, knows the man. Knows what has happened. And as God interviews, we've read through this chapter, I hope you picked this up, how immediately the relationships are absolutely wrecked from beginning. God says, to uh, the woman, what have you done? What has she do? or to, to the man rather, what have you done? And what does Adam do? He blames the woman. That's what a lot of men do. They blame the woman. But that's what Adam does. She was his. She was the rib of his body, flesh of his flesh. Now he's blaming her. They were in absolute harmony and united as one. Now he's blaming her. And what does the woman do? She blames the serpent. And in fact, what she's really doing is blaming God for allowing such a crafty one to enter the garden. And so the whole of creation has fallen and and destroyed. Thus the curse falls. And we see how God announces this curse. It comes in three parts. First of all, the serpent, Satan. You will crawl on your belly all the days of your life. And there will be an enmity between you, Satan, and the seed of the woman. And it's amazing to us that as God curses that wicked serpent, Satan, at the same time there is the announcement of the salvation of people. There is the hope that comes in verse 15. There will be enmity, he says, 
but her offspring will crush your head. And there in that text, there's a looking forward to God's Messiah. God knew what he would do. And Jesus Christ, even here, is in view. Yes, you will strike at his heel, but he will crush you. Crushing destroys. A mere strike at the heel might be a problem for a time. Then the woman is cursed by God. Or rather, put it differently, the curse falls upon the woman. It's not quite so bad. You will have pain in childbearing. And you will desire to have children and you will have that pain. And then to Adam, he says, thirdly, the ground will be cursed. And the problem that you're going to have is by the very sweat of your brow, you will have to earn your living. And so we see the threefold problems that come into the world. There's enmity between God and Satan, between the offspring of God, those who would be truly his, and the wicked, those who would follow Satan and continue in rebellion. But there is hope even there. And and daily man and woman would be reminded of this in childbearing, and as the man goes out to earn his living by the sweat of his brow. So when you find your work strenuous, when it is difficult, when you're wondering why you have to deal with all these problems, remember you're a sinner. Remember you're a sinner. And remember Christ. And you will find peace with him. And it is with Jesus and with him alone that you will have life. It is only as you come and hand your whole life into Christ's hand that the work that you're given to do will be enabled to be done in the right way. It'll still be difficult, still be challenges, but under Christ you will be able to do it because it will be redeemed. Then him you will have hope of glory. Yes, Satan will always be there, the cunning enemy, the crafty one who wants to destroy. But in Jesus he is crushed we can rejoice in that. Here then is an overview of chapter 3. We have a cra- the crafty enemy, the serpent, Satan. We have the cunning deception of the woman. We have their curiosity which fails. We have the cowering from God. And we have the curse that falls. But in the, in the midst of all that darkness, There's the light of an everlasting Savior who has crushed the ancient serpent to bring life to whosoever seeks him. Have you sought that life? Have you sought to be life in Christ? 